I want to tell you a little bit about what we're going to do this morning. So we're uh, wrapping up our sermon series in 1 Peter, and then we're going to do a recap of it. Um, and I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to preach a 20-minute sermon. Some of you guys are like, no, there's no way he's going to preach a 20-minute sermon. Watch me. Not only am I going to preach one, I'm going to preach two 20-minute sermons this morning. There you go. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to wrap up 1 Peter. And then we're also going to walk back through 1 Peter. Because for us, it's so important that we go through a book of the Bible from beginning to end. So we get to know Peter. We get to know his audience. We get to know his intention. And for us, walking back through, we want to walk away from this. What did I learn from from Peter? If I'm going to walk away with one thing out of this series or many things, what should I hold on to? And so I want to begin with question. Because both of these mini-sermons, uh, they will make sense together, I hope. But both of these mini-sermons will, will have to do with the grace of God. So I want to begin with a question that every one of us has to answer in our lives. Where do we go in times of need? Where do we go when things don't make sense? Where do we go when we're hurting, when we're broken, when we don't have answers? What's your first reaction? So there's a lot of different options we have on where we go when we're worried, where we go when we're, when we're anxious. Where do we go when we celebrate? For us, followers of Christ, the writer of Hebrews makes that very clear. I want to start in Hebrews chapter 4. I'm just going to read a couple of verses at the end of chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. You can turn with me there if you like, otherwise I'm just going to read them. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Since... Then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The throne of grace. This is the throne of the almighty God. But yet it is a place of comfort. It is a place of welcome. It is a throne of grace. And this word approached with confidence from the Latin con fide, with faith. By faith you can approach boldly and confidently before the throne of grace. What is grace? Because it's a word that's uh, in our name. It's a word that, that church culture throws around, and we have a lot of ideas about grace, and most of them are probably correct. But most of them are probably incomplete. Because the word grace, as we've, as we've probably seen, if we've read Scripture once or twice, it's, it's, it's unmerited favor. It's something that God gives to us whether we deserve it or not. The word grace has so many depths to it. There's so many riches. And I hope we can just scratch the surface this morning. Because I want to make the case that for Peter, he only mentions grace in the very beginning, in the very end. The words great, the word grace. But throughout it, you can't escape the grace of God. And the way that God acts toward sinners. So thinking about it this week, I'm reading a book called The Bruised Reed. And if you guys know anything about me, I love the Puritans. 
that they, they kind of get a bad rap in our, in our modern culture of these stuffy religious guys from the, the 16 and 1700s. But they were passionate men of God. They stood up for the gospel. They preached very hard. They loved people very well. And they sought to live out God's word in their lives every moment of their lives. And this book, The Bruised Read, comes from Isaiah 42. Looking forward to God sending his son and his son, the servant, who would come to serve and come to suffer and come to die, would not break a bruised reed. Well, the bruised reed, a reed is kind of a frail thing, a weak thing like us. And if you're weak already and you have a bruise in you, you're, you're not going to last long. But this is looking forward to when Jesus told us that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The suffering servant, the servant of God, the son of God, came to lift up the bruised and the broken and take the weak and make them strong in him. But before we can understand grace, we have to understand our weakness. We have to understand that we are frail. We're not God. We never will be. We are born into sin. We live in sin until he comes again. And if we try to get by on our own strength, also in Psalm 42, excuse me, Isaiah 42, he will, he will bring down those who are heavy in their, their heart, who, who are arrogant. But the lowly he will lift up. And so grace begins with understanding our lowliness, understanding that we are broken, we are frail, and we need our Lord. We need his strength. And so what is grace? Yes, grace is unmerited favor. Yes, grace is God's kind actions towards sinners. But what does that really mean? Because unless you understand how deep sin is, that it goes right to our core, that we are dead without him, that in sin there is nothing but death. And in Christ, and only in Christ, is there life. And so he came to give us life. He came to live as we did, as we just read in, in Hebrews. He came suffering and being tempted by sin in every way, yet not sinning. So that he could go before God and be our offering and be our perfect sacrifice. So that he could pay the price that no one ever could. And Peter wants his readers to remember that so many times he tells them suffering will come, trials will come. He's writing to a first century church in the midst of persecution. Who needed hope. They needed to understand God's grace because they may face death for their faith. And all believers throughout history who have ever been martyred, who have ever lost their lives as a witness to God's grace, have needed to understand that his grace is sufficient for them in that moment. Who appreciates healing more? The one with a paper cut or the one with a life-threatening illness? The one who's only sort of bad or the one who is dead in their sins with no chance at life but through trusting in their Savior? It's not the mighty and the strong who understand grace. It's the bruised reeds. It's these frail vessels. It's those of us who've been broken and riddled by our own sin. Only then will we be lifted up by the grace of God. And if you learn only one thing in your time in this church, in your time this morning, I want you to understand this, that God has incredible grace toward sinners. And your utter need for it every day of your life. And everyone else you will ever meet, the only answer they can have 
to the worries and needs of their life is the grace of God. I want to read this quote from Jerry Bridges before we begin. And I love this. I think he sums it up well. He says, Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning, this time together is an act of worship. That we come before you with humble hearts, with broken and contrite spirits. That we set aside our pride, our arrogance, our desire to earn your favor, Lord, and just to cry out for your mercy. Because in that, you lift us up. You exalt us in your grace. And you set us up on eagle's wings and carry us throughout the rest of our days. And let us look forward to your coming again. We may rejoice in this life and we may rejoice in your coming. Because our hope is only found in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in 1 Peter. Turn to chapter 5 with me. We're not going to skip any verses, even the last ones. They, they seem insignificant. Uh, these, these letters from the New Testament writers will have uh, these salutations at the end. They'll, they'll give you kind of quick notes at the end, letting you know uh, who may have helped them write, wrote it, write the letter, who may have delivered it, uh, and what the, the purpose of this was. And so at the end of 1 Peter, he's got these, these few sentences that are the closing to the letter. But they are very important. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. By Sylvanius, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So right away reading this, he's introducing some things that we have not seen yet in 1 Peter and some, and some questions. I even had some of you ask me during the week, what, what does this mean? And who's he talking about here? And so we're going to get into that a little bit. So uh, Silvanus, as far as we can understand, is a Romanized version of Silas. Uh, Silas would have been the, the, the Greek name and Silvanus would have been his, his Roman name, which makes sense for uh, where he's writing from, and we'll see that in just a moment. So this is probably delivered by Silas, not necessarily written in Silas's hand, uh, but either way, Silas was a brother and companion to Paul throughout his ministry. And so Paul is saying the purpose of his letter, why he's writing, and in close, he says a couple important words. He says, I have written briefly to exhort, excuse me, briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, which is the true grace of God. Exhorting and declaring, these are two words that every faithful preacher should know and that should govern our lives as believers. Exhorting is encouraging, entreating, comforting. It's the process of using God's word to lift people up. The process of using God's word to heal. Of using our words to glorify Christ and to encourage one another. So he does that through his exhortations in this book. But he also does it through his declarations. He declares the word of God and he declares it boldly. Peter declares it as a witness, an eyewitness. We're reading this as someone who walked with Jesus, who saw him live sinlessly, who saw him die, saw him as he rose again. And Peter tells us in this book 
That even though you don't see him, you love him. And how amazing is it that we've never seen Jesus face to face. We've never seen him with flesh. But yet we know him intimately. As his children, we can declare these truths as if we walked with him because we've seen the change in our lives. We've seen him in so many ways, even if not in the flesh. We've seen how he's brought dead people to life. And so, like Peter, we exhort and we declare God's word. And as Peter, the witness, heard from that shepherd, he's encouraging the flock. And he's telling them that one day you will see him again. And he wants us to get over and over and over again, this is the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. No matter what help, whatever else happens in your life, this is the true grace of God. So as we walk back through the letter, we're going to see what Peter wants us to understand about the, the true grace of God. Because in short, the true grace of God is hope in Christ through all things. In his work, in his return. And so God's grace to us always points back to Christ. And Peter's going to do that quite a few times. But for us, in short, that's what the true grace of God is, is the finished work of Christ. But we're going to walk back through and look for some specifics because this is a very practical letter. This has something to say to each one of us. Because most of our lives may go sort of how we think it's supposed to go, but there are many times when it doesn't. There are many times when we get curveballs, when we get thrown off, but there are many times when it gets really difficult. And you really know what your faith is based on when things get difficult. You really understand grace in the middle of your darkest hours. Because if our Savior got on his knees and, and prayed to the point of blood for mercy, for his cup to be taken from him, how can we ever expect to get through life without leaning on the grace and mercy of God? And that's why Peter tells us to stand firm in it. The true grace of God, stand firm there. As Megan read earlier, there is no other rock. There is no other solid ground. There's nothing else we can stand on. So we can play all the games we want and, and preach all the gimmicks we want. But ultimately, if we're not standing on solid ground, if our feet are not plainly, uh, firmly planted on Christ, the storms of this life will wash us away, guaranteed. And Peter is writing to people in the midst of storms. He's writing, verse 13, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So I got a text this week. Who is she in 1 Peter 5.13? Well, good question. Who is she? Now, in the, in the early church, now this could be, uh, some have, have uh, postulated that it's Peter's wife, and probably not. Uh, but what we understand is in the early church, there was this affectionate way that they talked about one another. And they would talk about one another as sister churches, as mother churches, this affectionate way of calling one another. When they, when they say she who is at Babylon, so when they talk about she, he's talking about a, a, a church. Um, We'll talk about Babylon. By this time, Babylon was destroyed about 500 years before this is written. So Babylon is not really a city at this point. Babylon is, is de destroyed right around the end of, of, uh, of Daniel. And so they're not talking about Babylon, this the city. We're talking about Babylon as spiritual Babylon, the essence of all paganism. 
What was that? Rome. So as far as we know, this is written at the end of Peter's life in the city of Rome. The height of all paganism, the height of all ungodliness. So she, who is likewise chosen, the elect, the church gathered in Rome, is writing. So when he says she who is at Babylon, it's similar to us saying we who are in Sin City or the Windy City or the Big Apple. We all know these, these terms. They're just common to us. And, and to them, they would have understand that, that Babylon was the center of all wickedness. And so this is where Peter's writing from at the end of his life. And why is this important? Why do we care? Because Peter was martyred at the end of his life in Rome. And church tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down. Because he was so humbled by God's grace that he didn't, wanna, he didn't consider himself worthy to die the same way his Savior did. My Savior's painful death on the cross is not enough for me. I need to be crucified upside down if you're going to crucify me. Because Peter, of all people, knew what it was like to be a bruised reed. To be broken to his very core. And it connects us with this theme of exile throughout the letter. The Jewish people knew exile very well. Babylon was where they were sent. Babylon was was when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and sent the people out. They were in exile. They were not in their homeland. And so he's telling his readers, you're in spiritual exile. And he's making that connection that he says many times throughout this, this letter. During the time of your exile, during the time of your sojourning, remember, this is not your home. Remember, you're in, the midst, you're in the midst of pagan peoples in a pagan nation. But your home is what Peter also mentions over and over and over again. The glory of our Savior. The eternal inheritance that we have in Him. And looking forward to when He comes in full glory and everything is brought to its culmination in Christ. And how deep it's this letter, 1 Peter, if we know that it is also written while well, he's under persecution and maybe under trial himself. And his attitude in the midst of persecution to those who are being persecuted is find your hope in Christ. Find your strength in him. For he has paid the price for you and he will sustain you forever. That is the heart of Peter's letter. And I encourage you, if you've been here for a while, if you're just here for a short time, Read back through 1 Peter, especially after this this recap we're going to do, to get an idea of where Peter's heart is here. Because remember, the weak, feeble Peter who runs and denies his Savior three times is used by God in a mighty way. And we are still benefiting from his letter today. So she who is at Babylon, the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Mark is also important uh, because the gospel that, that bears his name, Mark, as we see in Acts 12, is one of the first disciples in the early church. And Mark is one of Peter's direct disciples. And Mark, as far as we understand church tradition, also tells us that he wrote Peter's account down as a gospel. Now, Mark, if you're, if you're sitting under someone, if you've been someone's disciple in that culture, uh, like the young disciples did with Jesus, Mark would have walked with Peter every day. He would have heard him taught and teach in house after house and city after city. He would have known these stories, would have known these accounts. And he would have written them down in his own hand. 
And so we see that in the Gospel of Mark. And so there's this connection here between the discipler and the disciple, his son. His son in the faith, there was such a close connection. This was not his biological son, but someone who had walked with him and studied under him. And he was so proud of him. And if you've been in the faith long enough to have someone come up under you who you've seen grow and you've seen progress, there's this, there's this great pride that comes along with seeing someone walk in the nature of Christ and that you had a small part in God's grace in their lives. And so then we close with verse 14. Greet another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is probably the one I've been asked about more than any. The kiss. What is this whole kiss thing about? Is this some ritual we should be doing? Are we missing out on, on, on something? Uh, no, it's not that that serious. Uh, this was something that was in the, the culture as a show of respect. It was a, a family hug, a family embrace. It was getting close to someone and recognizing that you were made in the image of God and I am made in the image of, of God. And we're greeting one another with love. I mean, that's as simple as it is. But it was important in that culture because if you didn't, it was a disgrace. I mean, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 7 that when he goes to Simon the Pharisee's house, he didn't wash his feet, he didn't give him a kiss. But the woman of the street never stopped kissing his feet. So Jesus recognizing that this is a social cue. I love Dylan's face, like kissing his feet. Yeah. That's how much she needed God's grace. She was willing to kiss his dirty feet. When this righteous Pharisee would not even give him the kiss of welcome. I mean, we, we still see this done in many old world cultures. The kiss is still the appropriate greeting. And, and that's, that's all this is. This is just greeting one another with love. You actually enjoy being around one another. There, there are actually uh, people who you can't wait to see because you share this love of the Lord and you share in this grace with one another. And peace to all of you who are in Christ. I mean, this is a common uh, closing in a lot of letters. This word peace uh, means a lot of things, and it's thrown around a lot in our culture and in other cultures. But what does Jesus say peace is? Uh, We're going to close this section in John 14. Turn there with me. What does Jesus say peace is? Because Jesus tells the disciples about peace in a very similar context. John 14, I'm just going to read verses 25 through 27. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them not be afraid. What is the peace of Christ that he leaves with us? His spirit. That for those who trust and believe in him, he did not leave us alone. He did not leave us as orphans. He left us with his very spirit. The peace that passes all understanding is the spirit of God dwelling within us. And for those who are in the midst of the world, not as the world gives, the world only offers temporary peace. There is no true grace in the world, but the grace of God is for eternity, and it passes all understanding. So, that's how Peter closes. Now let's look back at the letter. So we're going to 
I'm just going to breeze on some very high notes. Uh, obviously, we can't spend a lot of time in this, but I want to get you some, some things to think about and some reasons to go back to this book. What is this letter about and, and what separates it from every other letter? Why do we go through entire books of the Bible? It seems like such a laborious process. Wouldn't it be easier to talk about all these buzzwords and um, all these popular cultural topics? Yes, it would be easier. But when the early church opened these letters, they were on the edge of their seat. They wanted to see what Peter had to say, what Paul had to say, what John had to say. And throughout history, the word of God, which the writer of Hebrews tells us is living and active, still speaks to us. And why wouldn't we let it speak to us as it was meant to be read and meant to be written? And and that's why we go through these books. And so uh, looking back, we're going to go through a quick crash course um, through the rest of this letter. And I hope, just like Peter, this letter will be an encouragement to you. It will be an encouragement by understanding the grace of God and make you feel bold in declaring that wondrous grace. So there's a brief outline, and this is just my outline, uh, just three major sections, and there are many different outlines to this. But I want you to get how kind of Peter develops his argument here. He starts in 1, uh, 2 through, through 2.12, the, giving us a gospel identity. So Peter is very uh, pastoral in his approach. He has, he has power and he has passion but he's also personal, and he understands what his readers need to hear. And so for the first chapter and a half or so of this letter, he lays out a gospel identity. And I told you last week my favorite passage, 1, 3 through 7, that tells us these great things about God's mercy and our, us being born again, this living hope through the resurrection of Christ, our inheritance, and our faith that is being made ready through refinement and all of these amazing things. And our salvation that is past, present, and future. Salvation accomplished by Christ on the cross. That it is continued and carried out by the Holy Spirit now. And it will be fulfilled one day. In this salvation that is so amazing, Peter says in 1.10 that the, the prophets who prophesied about the grace which was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Every writer of the Old Testament uh, called the, the prophets by the early church. All look forward to the grace of God. They knew something was coming. They knew God was working. And we get to experience it. So much so that the angels themselves, verse 12, they long to see it. Can you imagine angels looking down from heaven? Saying this is what God has done. He's taken dead things and brought them back to life. He sent his son down. And he's redeeming all things to himself. This is amazing. And we are in the midst of it. Though we have not seen Christ. He continues, he's called us to be holy, set apart, to be his children, to be bought with a price so that we could sit at his table, which we will do in a little while. We can call him father. Jesus says that you are to call no man father but me in this sense, this Abba, that we get to go before him in a personal sense, that we know him as a child knows his father intimately, comfort. By comfort and by grace, We can come before the throne of Abba, the throne of grace. And he tells us about our exile. And he tells us about what God has been doing since the foundation of the world. And what it should mean for us. That we are born again of imperishable seed. All of this is gospel identity. All of this is what the gospel tells us we are. 
We're not just random processes thrown together. We're not just here trying to work our way to heaven. In Christ, we have these riches now. And we will have them one day in fulfillment. And Peter reminds us of that over and over and over again. And he tells us more about our identity, that you are elect and chosen. That you are brought as living stones, Christ the cornerstone himself, and us built on top of him to be a spiritual house. To be worshipped for God. Our identity must flow forth into worship. A chosen race, a royal priesthood to intercede and pray for the nations. Our identity in Christ is not just, I'm a Christian and I go about my life. God's grace is not just, I get better than what I deserve. It's I get more than what I could ever hope to imagine. I'm a rock built on top of the cornerstone. I am a priest who can intercede, who can bring offerings before the throne of God. And then he gets into gospel conduct, roughly starting in verse 13. He gets into this this section about submission, which we all love so much, right? We all love to submit. Of course not. They didn't either. Because our, our human nature is we want to stand up for ourselves. We want to be our own gods. We want to be our own righteousness. But in submission, we show the grace that has been shown to us. So he walks through this. Submission to authorities. Submission to masters. To bosses. Submission to husbands. Submission to wives. Submission to parents. Submission to the elders. He walks through our Identity in this, this grace that we've been shown should come out of our lives and should be so evident to those around us that unbelievers are going to think we're crazy. Amen, Leah. The way Peter teaches is the way that most writers teach and the way that most preachers should preach. They start with the information, they start with the indicative And then they get to the imperative or they get to the the commands. And we've talked about this so much. But your doctrine must drive your direction. Your principle must drive your practice. Peter has to tell us who we are first. What Christ has accomplished first before he can tell us what to do. And the problem with modern Christianity and every other religion on the face of the earth is that they tell you what you have to do first before you become who you are. Because of Christ, we are his first, and everything else flows out from that. And that is so important, and we can't miss that. Peter starts with the first things first. This is what you've inherited in Christ. Now this is what you do with it. And he continues in that throughout chapter 4, talking about all the things that Christ has done to us and what we should do with that. In the household of faith, we show hospitality toward one another. We serve toward one another. We use our gifts toward one another. In order that in everything, God may be glorified. So then he continues toward the end, which I call gospel perspective. So he takes who we are and what we do with it. And he tells us how that should affect our mindset. What we should set our hearts on. What that should do to us. How we should walk through this. How we should live in those situations. And he starts as a pastor should. Beloved. Because he loves them, because he knows them intimately. He leans across the table, he sits down, he said, Beloved, because all this is true, because of the grace that you've experienced through Christ, because of the sufferings that will come, because Christ suffered, 
We are to in all ways be like him. Here's how you live through that. Rejoice. One of the craziest things in all of scripture, right after talking about suffering, knowing that it's going to come, tells us rejoice. How crazy is that? How against modern wisdom and human reasoning could it be to rejoice in the midst of suffering? To sing praises to our God when the world hates us. You know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we never thought that the world would publicly hate Christians. It seems like there's a new reason every day for Christians to be slandered in the news and in, 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 in articles. Jesus promised that this was going to come. Peter was experiencing. Peter was writing to his readers, say that five times fast, in the midst of persecution. Peter being persecuted, them being persecuted, real persecution. We have a little bit of shame in, in, in popular culture. but They're not putting us to death. Here, Christians are being put to death. And so for us to read this in the comfort of our air conditionings and our comfortable couches, it may not have the same effect as for our brothers and sisters around the world right now who may read this before they go to the gallows, before they go to execution, or before they go to prison for the rest of their lives because they will not renounce their Savior. Imagine reading this in the midst of that. Imagine looking forward to the eternal glory in Christ in the midst of present anguish and real suffering. And so I want us as a body and as a people to know where to go in Scripture. I want the Bible to be like your Swiss Army knife, like you know which tool you need to go to during which times. When I'm suffering, when I'm hurting, go to 1 Peter. Go to Psalm 40. Go to Jeremiah. People who understood suffering and put their glory and their trust in the Lord. And use the Bible as a tool. We know where to go to rejoice. We know where to go to be challenged. We know where to go to encourage. And Peter does that so well. And this grace is lived out in such an amazing way in the rest of this gospel perspective because he talks about leaders. There's a special section written in here to elders, which again is so contrary to popular belief because in this culture, if you were a leader, you had every right to subjugate people, to push them under your, your thumb, to make them do what you want. If you were an elder, if you were in charge of anyone, anywhere, you had authority. You were God in their eyes but not so with the leaders of God's people. Grace led the elders to be humble. Grace led them to serve. And grace led those who the elders served to respond in grace. So this is a picture of the church that is unlike any other institution where our Savior humbled himself, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed the feet of sinners, despicable sinners, would run the other way. And we are to live out his example and serve one another in the same way. And that can only come from the grace of God. So what are some of the major themes here? We're going to look at these real quickly. Hope through suffering is the theme of this entire series. Seems like an oxymoron within itself. How can we have hope through suffering? 
Because even though we are separated by centuries in cultures and languages, the hope is still the same. It is God's grace toward sinners. They understood that their identity in Christ is the same as our identity in Christ. And our hope is only in Him. And nothing else is going to fill that. So then why suffering? Why do we have to go through suffering? Because like pain, God uses it to show us when something's wrong. Like antiseptic, it hurts for a moment, but it heals. Like surgery, there may be pain within it, but it brings restoration. And for us, suffering refines us. And it brings us before the grace of God. It forces us to look to Him when we have no answers for ourselves. Because refinement, we've talked about so many times in this series, is the process by which they take gold and they turn it from 10 to 14 to 18 to 20 to 24 carat by turning up the heat. And our faith is increased as the heat is turned up. And many times throughout the sufferings and the trials, we grow closer to Him and we grow closer in Him because of them. And these trials are not by accident. These trials are not outside of God's hand as we, as we saw. But even if we suffer according to God's will, that we can rejoice in that. Because ultimately, he's making all things new and bringing all things back to himself. And we can suffer by refinement because of God's grace. Peter shows us this grand plan of Trinitarian redemption. In the very first verse, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are working out out our redemption. And we see throughout this entire letter, this salvation that was accomplished by Christ, continued by the Spirit, and will one day be fulfilled in Him. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards. He says, Grace is but glory begun. And glory is but grace perfected. Grace is but glory begun. And glory is but grace perfected. Our entire lives are a mirror of Christ. That after he left glory, he came down here to be tempted and to suffer, to die, so that he could one day go and be in glory with the Father. And our lives are similarly like that. There is a time of suffering, but in him there is grace and glory forever. And so it ultimately culminates in us being a witness for the gospel. The witness of God's glory. The witness of this grace that we have received. Throughout this letter, Peter always has a mind on the witness. Because he talks about what your actions are going to (laughs) do. They're going to glorify God when you see their actions. They're going to hate you. But they're going to have no choice but to glorify God. There is something different about these people. I love to hear stories about our body. When someone says to you, I want what you have. I want the Jesus that you talk about. Because the Jesus that I've been told about is not this. The Jesus that I've been told about only helps when things are going well. And when they don't, I don't have any answers. But the God of the scriptures, our Savior, the one who really bestows grace on us, is something that the world must recognize and glorify God in. Peter also encouraged us to make a defense with our words, being able to describe this hope that we have. And I want that to be us because I want us to be beacons of hope to our neighbors, to the nation. I want us in the midst of suffering, especially in suffering, to rejoice in the Lord and for everyone to think that we're crazy 
but secretly want what we have and send them to the one who gives it freely. Because our whole lives should be testimonies of God's grace and his work within us. So as we close, what is the true grace of God? The true grace of God is that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son to die. To pay the price for our sin. To become the only perfect substitute for us. That we should die to ourselves and to the world. That we should be separated. We should trust in him. Become his children. To take a seat at his table. To be recipients of this grace. To live as his holy priests. Showing grace to one another. Having hope in the midst of suffering. Because our glory is in Christ. And that the true grace of God leads the true, true children of God to be a witness. The hope that they have. In their words and in their deeds until Christ returns. So you see it there in your outline. But the Christian has hope through suffering by refinement because of the grace of God and for a witness of his glory. And so to transition us into next week, next week we're going to walk into Hebrews uh, chapter 11. I'm going to walk through the, what it means to live out your faith in this great picture of the hall of faith. And we'll see Cain and Abel and we'll see Noah and we'll see Abraham and we'll see Moses and we'll see Rahab and all these amazing stories of grace in people's lives. So we're going to close with this quote from Martin Luther, which connects these two so well. Luther says that faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. And that we will see over the next few weeks in Hebrews. And I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. I know this is not one of our most fun sermons, um, but this is one of those things, if I can do anything, I want you to get excited about God's word and see the depths of what it is teaching us. And so sometimes we go through exciting passages and sometimes we walk through things a little more thoughtfully, a little more intentionally, so that we can walk away with a better understanding of God's word to his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are God of mercy. That you are God of steadfast love when we were unloving and unfaithful. Thank you for your son. Thank you for sending him on our behalf. Thank you for the new covenant written in his blood. Thank you for your spirit who you sent to guide us, to comfort us, to be our peace in the midst of trials. Thank you for the church. Thank you for believers that we can walk alongside one another and share that encouragement with one another to declare these truths to each other. Lord, I just pray for your people who you have in this city. We believe just like they did in Acts that you have people in this city and you are drawing them to yourself. Lord, use us as your hands and feet to be ministers of hope, to declare the gospel, to be a light in the city, to be a place of refuge because we take refuge at your throne of grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.